So last week, uh, when we were together, uh, we talked about the parable of the leaven, the yeast working its way through the flour. And uh, no doubt you remember that sermon in vivid detail, but just to refresh your memory, uh, my purpose in talking about that parable was to get us to think about how the kingdom of God is always, always operating and, and can't be stopped. And that's true even if we don't feel like the kingdom is moving among us or even when we can't see it. And because of this, I said, we don't need to live in fear. Even when we're tempted to think that the world is getting worse and worse and that forces are arrayed against us, we don't need to fear that God is somehow going to be stopped or that the kingdom that God has set in motion is somehow going to be thwarted. Uh, Today, I want to talk about a parable which has a different message about the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks about the kingdom in parables precisely because they highlight different facets of what the kingdom is. And this is not opposite what we talked about last week, but it is complementary. It's different uh, to that other message about the kingdom. And the parable I want to talk about today is just the first verse in the scripture that was read. The parable of the treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I remember when I was a kid, I was fascinated with things I found in the ground or on the ground, much to my mother's chagrin. I uh, collected bottle caps and not just pristine bottle caps that one found, but just Bottle caps I found strewn about the road, bottle caps that had been run over by other cars, bottle caps that were not appealing to anyone except to me, who just liked to look at them and imagine the bottles they had once been on, I reckon. Uh, Until the time I was 11, I lived in the house where my dad had grown up. He had lived in that house until he was 13, and then they had moved, but the house stayed in the family, and so we lived there when, when I was a kid. And it was on this plot of land that had been in my family for a long time. And behind our house, there was a a cement pad where a shed once had been. And we used to find there the most amazing things in in the ground right near the shed. Most most interesting to me were these little dark brown insulin bottles about this big. Um, My great-grandmother had been diabetic, and so these were traces of her treatment, I guess, In addition, we lived not far from where there had been a Native American settlement, and so we would run across arrowheads in the big field behind our house. And sometimes it was something fun like that, and sometimes it was just trash, like an old Coke bottle that I love to find. It it didn't matter what it was, really. I just liked to find relics of a time that had gone by. Um, Like all kids, though, I, I harbored a dream that one day I would find more than just trash out there. I wished for treasure, for buried treasure. I love to read stories of kids who had found buried treasure. And believe it or not, my noble homeland, New Jersey, is historically thought to have a lot of buried treasure on it. Captain Kidd, Captain William Kidd, the 17th century notorious pirate, spent a lot of time in New Jersey. And many of the beach towns along the ocean in New Jersey are rumored to be the site of Captain Kidd's buried treasure. In fact, Wildwood, uh, one of those towns, has a Captain Kidd weekend, a pirate weekend every summer where everyone dresses up as pirates and the kids look around and you know, try to find the buried treasure. I, I loved the thought of finding treasure where I was. And 
I love the thought of somehow, you know, getting rich quick, you know, of finding something valuable, of kind of beating the odds. I realized as I was writing this out that the idea of beating the odds and making a quick buck might just be a New Jersey thing. I don't know, but... but uh, But I know that the allure of finding buried treasure is wider than just us kids who grew up in New Jersey. Every kid, I think, is fascinated in some way with the idea of finding buried treasure, of being the one kid to get lucky to strike it rich. You know, I was thinking more broadly, actually. It's it's funny to think back to when I was a kid and, and the way in which life when you're a child is just pervaded with this sense of adventure. Right? You don't go outside just to play, but when I went outside, there was like a world to be discovered, and I wasn't ever sure when I went out which world it was that I would discover. I I might reenact the football game I had just seen on TV by myself, and so there's me, and then there's 21 other imaginary people playing football, but they were real to me, you know? Maybe, Maybe I'd find buried treasure, or maybe I would get down on my knees and just look at a caterpillar, right, and just watch the caterpillar, and and soon find myself having a sort of communion with the caterpillar, sure that I I knew the caterpillar's life story, sure that I knew where it was going from and where it was going to and who it was going to see when it got there. Maybe I would just find an old toy buried in last summer's sandbox and and be transported back to a a previous summer when I had played with it last time. One summer I remember, and I guess with the warm weather I've been thinking about the summer, I remember how... Uh, for some weeks in the summer, my neighbor's tree was covered every morning with the skins of cicadas who had come and rested on the tree to molt, and then they left their skins behind. They were just covered. You know, and we'd go over in the mornings, and I would go over, and my brother, and I guess we were probably eight and six, and we had neighbors who were, you know, four and five, and we would just pick them off the tree, and we'd look at them and think, there was once a, a bug in here. You know, we'd look at them with the with the deep interest that only children really have about such things, you know? The mind of a child is an amazing thing. I just, most of the time, I love to watch my oldest two children now begin to get to be that age, although I understand now how it can be exasperating to parents as well. But, but I just love to watch them. I love to watch the worlds that are developing and present in their mind, all that creativity and, and something that somehow one loses as, as they age. It's especially interesting to me, thinking of all of that creativity, that as someone who always felt very at home in the church, to realize that most people's attitude towards the church, towards the things of faith, is diametrically opposite from that attitude of a kid going out to play for the morning. How somehow people's approach to the church is just different than that sense of adventure that would pervade me when I woke up on some ordinary Tuesday summer morning and thought, I have the whole day to go outside and find new stuff. And most people's feelings about the church are very different than that. There's a sense for most people that Christianity represents a, a sort of establishment in our country. An establishment that we've inherited from a previous generation, right? Christianity is about behaving a certain way. It it is about maintaining decorum. It is about primarily restraining and channeling our inner impulses, not giving them free reign like a kid on a Tuesday morning exploring outside. It's primarily about disciplining ourselves, not about increasing our creativity, 
At its worst, it's, it's mostly about telling me what kind of fun I'm not allowed to have, what kind of food I'm not allowed to eat, what kind of beverages I'm not allowed to drink, and how much money I'm not allowed to spend on myself. For many people in our country, Christianity is, is, is something we feel we've inherited from a previous generation and primarily something that we're afraid of losing before we pass it on to the next generation. And so, as such, it's essentially something conservative. And I, I don't mean that in a political sense, but, but it's something we've been given that we're trying to conserve and preserve and pass on. We're, because of this, perhaps, I think we tend to live fearfully as Christians, that we're going to drop the ball, as it were. Afraid that our rights as Christians are going to be taken away on our watch. Afraid that our cultural advantages and and dominance as Christians might be taken away on our watch. And, And so the result is that most people think of Christianity as something entrusted to us that we have and need to protect, not something that we can go out and find. And that's what makes this parable so interesting to me. And the first thing I want you to notice in it is the way it talks about the kingdom as buried treasure. The kingdom of heaven is more the stuff of a kid going out on a lazy summer Tuesday morning with a wild imagination than it is the stuff of proper adults protecting positions of power. Imagine for a second that you are doing renovations in your home and you tear out a wall and there, hidden in the wall, is a suitcase full of money. And that money is old enough that, of course, it's worth far more as collectible than it is as currency. It's worth more even than what's printed on the paper. Can you imagine the feeling that you'd have? You would feel lucky, of course, but you wouldn't just feel lucky. You'd feel giddy, right? I, uh, I realize this is kind of a, a Houghton thing, but of course we live in Alan Esther Smith's old house. And uh, when I was installing a fan, I found a gospel tract up in the insulation. It's not exactly like that, right? But that's, a, that's more typically what you would find in Houghton, I reckon. Uh, but I don't reckon they had suitcases full of money, but I'll talk with Charlie and Audrey and see if they're, <laughs> they're that sort. But, but if I found a suitcase full of money, I wouldn't just feel like, yay, a lot of money, but I'd feel like, how did this find me? I, uh, this is the kind of stuff you read about in the newspapers. This is the kind of stuff that shows up on the last two minutes of a local newscast. You know, a local man finds suitcase full of money. Uh, this happened here to me in Houghton? That's what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is. A person who who suddenly, through no fault of their own, is just minding their own business and suddenly stumbles on the most amazing riches they have ever seen. Maybe this should uh, give us a clue about why Jesus talks about being like children to enter the kingdom. Because only kids would think it's even possible to stumble upon something so great on an ordinary Tuesday morning. But there it is, right in front of you. The kingdom of heaven. A treasure. How far removed is this from the way our culture understands Christianity? How far removed is this from the way that you understand Christianity? Right? The the culture out there, I expect to misunderstand the faith, but we often choose to, to view the faith primarily in terms of our own responsibilities. And we probably do that, I have a hunch, Because we like feeling like we're responsible for our own salvation. But that's another sermon for another time. Jesus' first point here is that the kingdom of heaven is first and foremost a gift beyond our wildest imaginations. And there's nothing at all that we can do to earn it. 
It's not like this parable tells us that this guy is a treasure hunter or anything. He's just a guy out working in a field when all of a sudden the shovel hits a dusty old chest, which turns out to be filled with Spanish doubloons. I mean, how long is it since you've considered what a privilege it is to have stumbled on this treasure in your life? I confess that most of the time when I wake up on Sunday morning, I do so primarily thinking about my responsibilities at church for the day, whether I'm on staff as I was this past year or even before that. This morning was one of those kind of mornings for me. We have a three-week-old, Gabriel, at home. Gabriel did not want to go to sleep last night. Finally, I got him to go to sleep. We were watching Sports Center, and I went upstairs about 12.45, tucked him in. Three o'clock, he cried, got up, changed the diaper, hand off to mommy, went back to sleep. 6.15, cried, in come the other kids. Man, I was so tired this morning, and I thought to myself, I have nothing left in the tank this morning. What morning is it? Please be Saturday. Right? But it wasn't, it wasn't Saturday, right? It was Sunday, and not just any Sunday. a Sunday when I had to get up and preach the word of the Lord. And I thought, oh, that wasn't, I didn't feel like I'd hit a treasure in a wall or in the ground. I felt exhausted, and I thought, how am I going to meet my responsibility for the morning? And this parable reminds me, right, my attitude needs adjustment when I think that way. When, when I get up on Sunday morning, this parable says, you're going to a treasure chamber, a vast underground room that not everybody discovers, but it's filled with truth and riches that other people just don't get to see sometimes, right? The kingdom of heaven is like buried treasure. Second, notice what the man who finds the treasure does. As soon as he pulls that treasure chest up out of the ground, the first thing he does is to look around to make sure that no one else is watching. And then quickly and quietly, he puts that treasure chest back in the ground and he covers it over with dirt and he creeps away like nothing has ever happened. And he goes home and he empties his piggy bank and he realizes he has nowhere near enough money to buy that field. So he looks over at his TV and he says, I don't need TV. So he sells it and he realizes he's still short and he looks over at his bed and he says, "Ah, I can sleep on the floor. He sells his bed and he's still short. So he looks over and he sees his dog and he says, do I need it? I can't sell my dog. So, so he looks around, he empties out everything else, his furniture, his rug, his tables, his chairs, everything. And finally he has enough to buy that field and he runs down And he says, I hope that guy hasn't sold the field yet. And he hasn't. And he buys it just to get that treasure. Last week, we talked about how the kingdom of God is always at work. It's behind the scenes sometime. It's hidden sometimes. But it's always working. But here, though, I want you to see that the kingdom of God is something to be seized when you see it. It's something that we we need to take definitive action to secure and we need to choose to involve ourselves with the kingdom of God whatever inconvenience that may pose to the rest of our lives because of the promise of that great treasure now again I realize that I'm preaching to the choir and so this is the way that we're accustomed to thinking or maybe I should say it this way this is the way we're accustomed to knowing we're supposed to think and so we can process this in our heads yes this is how I'm going to view the kingdom of heaven But practically, day in, day out, I don't know if we always view the kingdom of heaven as a treasure to be seized rather than a set of responsibilities to which we have to tend. I invite you to think about exhibit A. 
that nagging feeling you have that you really should get involved with a small group at church, but it's a big time commitment. Or exhibit B, the, the, the feeling that you have that you should do some kind of missions thing this summer, maybe a short-term missions trip. I don't know, but there's, there's only 14 weeks between Memorial Day and Labor Day. I counted them, that's true. And you don't want to take one of them to do that, not to mention the vacation time you'd have to take from work. I don't know. Or, or maybe you, you feel like exhibit C, I, I really should get involved with Wellspring Ministries, uh, but I don't really know the people involved and I'd have to take so much time to get to know new people and there's already so many good people in Houghton that I, I don't know, it's just a lot of work. Now, please hear me, hear my heart. I'm not trying to browbeat you into doing those things. Sermons often degenerate into browbeating. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to say is, Look at how we conceptualize those things. Look at how we understand those things. When I talk to you about them, you probably resent a little bit that I talk to you about them because you perceive of them as duties. Duties which may belong to you, which may belong to someone else, but it's something that we all know has to get done. And I feel like I maybe should do it, maybe not. I don't know. I wish you wouldn't bring it up. Right? The message of this parable is that the kingdom of God, even with all its attendant difficulties, is an opportunity that you better seize when it comes your way. Now, that's not to say that you need to seize those three opportunities. Uh, When you leave church today, that you 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 need to sign up for all those three things to have said, I approve of this sermon. All I'm saying is, the next time you hear of those sorts of things, I wonder if you can begin to say, is this an opportunity which I'm to pursue, rather than, is this a duty I have to tend to? This is reflected in that Old Testament passage that was read, right? With Jacob and Leah and Rachel. In this passage, Jacob is told by Laban, if he wants to marry Rachel, he's going to have to work seven years for her. And Jacob does that. And in one of those beautiful poetic flourishes that the scripture has, we read that his love for her was so great that those seven years seemed but a few days. Right? And then, of course, there is this tremendous mix-up Directly after the wedding, which I still don't completely understand, so don't ask me. But after, after the wedding, Jacob discovers that he has not in fact married Rachel, but he has married her homelier sister, Leah. And he has told that if, oh, if you want to marry Rachel as well, he'll have to work seven more years. I will confess that I would have been extremely grouchy had I been Jacob. Jill, my wife, has three sisters. They're lovely people. I love each of them, but I don't want to be married to any of them. And in fact, I would have been a touch resentful of the whole family if they had tried to pull this sort of stunt on me, right? But Jacob is not resentful. Instead, Jacob sees that he still has an opportunity to marry the woman of his dreams, right? Yes, the road is harder than I thought, twice as hard. But he still has an opportunity if he will just seize it. And so seize it he does, and he works another seven years for her. And this is a a picture of how the kingdom should look to us. Yes, it's demanding, but the demands just wilt in light of the tremendous opportunity to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Third, I want you to notice the sneaky, mischievous, borderline criminal overtones of this parable. What the man does is perhaps dishonest. At least his actions reflect that he wants to maintain 
secrecy. He doesn't want to tell the owner of the land he's found treasure on it because he knows if he tells the man that he's found treasure on it, then the owner rightfully will be able to claim it as his own. And so instead, he reburies the treasure and then walks up to the owner as if nothing's wrong. He says, how much do you want for that field over there, right? Knowing full well that no matter the price he's quoted, he's going to be ripping the fellow off. Now, this part of the parable tends to make people very uncomfortable. And in fact, if you do any commentary kind of research on this, you'll find commentators going to great lengths to explain why this isn't really a problem. And that always is a red flag to me for maybe it is a problem, right? But I have to be honest, I like it. I li- and again, maybe this is the New Jersey thing in me coming out, you know? I don't know. I like it for lots of reasons, I think. I mean, the first reason I like it is because it, it really demonstrates to me that this parable is probably authentic. I mean, people who want to say that the scripture is just sort of invented and people put words in Jesus' mouth. If you're going to put words in your Lord and Savior's mouth, it's probably not going to be the kingdom of heaven is like sort of this shady fellow who ripped someone off. Right? So for me, I mean, I think it's good at first that it's because it's rough around the edges, it points to the fact it's probably original to the guy who said it. But I also have to say that part of what I, appeals to me is the scoundrel's charm. It demonstrates to me something of the way that Jesus wants us to pursue the kingdom. How should you pursue the kingdom, right? Jesus doesn't want us to pursue it like a rich man who sees an opportunity to make a little more money. He doesn't want us to pursue the kingdom like a man who's consumed with propriety, always concerned uh, that making sure other people know that he's a good person and he's on the up and up. He doesn't even want us to pursue the kingdom like people who are consumed with moral dilemmas. Is this right or isn't it? Maybe I should do it. Maybe I shouldn't. No, he wants people who will pursue the kingdom like shady hucksters who see their one big chance to make a fortune and never have to work a day again in their lives and will do whatever they have to do to make that happen. Does that mean he wants us to be deceitful in our interactions with each other? I I don't think so. I think that would make a mockery of the rest of the Gospels. But I think Jesus is looking for people with that spirit, people who see the kingdom and are so convinced that what he's saying really does have the secret to abundant life here and eternal life there, that they're going to chase it no matter the consequences, no matter the difficulty, no matter the dilemma, no matter what it looks like to the rest of the world. File this among things you never thought you would hear at church. I wonder if we have enough shady hucksters in this room. We don't really, of course, need shady hucksters, but, but we can find it difficult to pursue the kingdom with that sort of wild abandon. That's part of living in a community like ours where we're surrounded by Christians and sometimes we fear not looking Christian enough, right? So the old joke about how do you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a Wesleyan doesn't recognize Catholic baptism, but Wesleyans don't, rather, don't recognize other Wesleyans in the liquor store. There's that, right? We don't, <laughs> we don't want to appear not Christian enough. But we also don't want to appear too Christian, right? We don't want other people around us to feel judged. And so sometimes we sort of round off the edges of our faith so that other people don't feel imposed upon by our piety, But I think we do need to recognize that we, as a community, certainly as a church, and I think as a town in Houghton, 
have a, a shared vocation to be a place that embraces the value of the kingdom, even when that embrace looks a little odd, even when it looks countercultural. I mean, how amazing would it be if Houghton had a reputation of being a place that passionately pursued the kingdom? That had a drive to feed the hungry, even if the way we did it was a little strange. A drive to care for the body and the soul, even when other people didn't understand what we were doing. A drive to to build the kingdom community where everyone can know Christ's love, even when others might not understand it. What I'm getting at is this. How, How amazing would it be if Houghton was known as an adventurous place? A place a kid would feel at home on an ordinary Tuesday morning. A place where people took risks on behalf of the kingdom because we know the richness of God's love and we know how valuable that treasure is. We we live in what one scholar has called a disenchanted world. And by that he doesn't mean a grouchy world, although I suppose that's part of it, but but a world that's no longer enchanted, a world where we don't take God for granted, a world where we don't take the divine for granted, a world where we don't take the spiritual for granted. And as a result, uh, the Western world today feels superior to its ancestors who believed in a primitive God. But while our culture may feel superior to that, they also feel dreadfully alone. That's the hard thing about being smarter than everyone else is you're always, always alone. They fear people who passionately pursue the kingdom because it unnerves the story by which they live. It undermines the stories by which they live. They fear people who are sold out for God. But as much as the world fears other people who are sold out for God, they even more deeply fear, even though they won't admit it, they even more deeply fear that there is no God worth selling out for. When we embrace the message of this parable that the kingdom of God is a treasure that wise people pursue ardently, passionately, we give hope to a disenchanted world. We give hope to a generation that feels like they're lonely passengers on a random planet that started from nothing and is going nowhere in particular. That generation is just waiting to see a people who know what a treasure the kingdom of God is. It's my prayer that they see it in us. So let's pray together. God, how strange it is to imagine that this morning we've gathered not just in this room, but that this place is a treasure chamber. That this place is a place where we see clearly the things of God as they are. Where we sing your songs, where we meet your people, where we read and hear your word. God, thank you for the treasure that this is and the way that it points us towards true and abundant life. God, we pray that you would give us the spirit of this man. We don't aim to be deceitful in the way we live with each other, God, but but we know there's something to be admired about someone who pursues at all costs this treasure. And so we pray that you would make us that sort of person and that sort of body. We pray that other people would look at us and see there is a group of people who knows the treasure they've been given and live out of that love lives that are fearless and bold and powerful. We know this can happen only by the power of your spirit. So we pray through that power and in the name of Jesus. Amen.